I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. When we think about the culinary industry, I mean, there's some finesse to searing protein and cooking protein, but there's so much more that goes into preparing beautiful, vibrant, Mm -hmm. nutrient-dense, plant-based dishes. And honestly, that is, in my opinion, much more of a skill than creating a um, much more American standard American diet plate of like mashed potatoes, probably overcooked steak, maybe some canned green beans, you know, like it's just, that doesn't make me hungry. It doesn't make me excited about food, but plant-based cooking does. I'm Rip Esselstyn and welcome to the Plant Strong podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my Plant Strong peaches. I'm Rip Esselstyn. Welcome to another episode of the Plant Strong podcast. You have heard me say this before, and in fact, It's a quote that we say a lot on the Plant Strong team, and that is, it is the food, it's the food, it is the food. This is something that I think Dr. John McDougall has been saying forever, and Dr. Michael Clapper has a quote of this on the wall in his office. Well, today, it really is all about the food with my guest, Chef Stephanie White, She is the lead chef instructor of the Escoffier School of Culinary Arts plant-based degree program. And 
we just got back from our latest Plant Strong immersion in Black Mountain, North Carolina, and we were fortunate enough to have a couple of the Escoffier students that were assigned to us for this program, and I was just so incredibly impressed with these three interns, their knowledge, their skill, their experience, and their can-do attitude that I felt compelled to reach out and speak to the lead culinary chef instructor, who just happened to be Stephanie, who is truly a gem who has, over the course of her career, worked in a variety of different food establishments, including small businesses, pop-up kitchens, all kinds of catering and farm-to-table restaurants. But one of the things that I love is that not only is she passionate about cooking Plant Strong Food, she's equally passionate about the sustainability of the food, how we can collectively end food insecurity, and also optimizing self-care. All things that we on the Plant Strong team care deeply and passionately about. And today, she's going to share with us some of her favorite grains, green leafy vegetables, must-have tools and appliances for every kitchen, and she even shares a recipe for her sweet potato brownies. This is a really fun conversation with one of the most sought-after chefs in the plant-based space, and I cannot wait for you to meet Chef Stephanie. All right, my guest today is Stephanie Mike Lack White. Stephanie, welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Oh yeah, my pleasure. So your middle name, Mike Lack, you just told me that it was Polish. I am married to a, a Polish woman. Her last mm-hmm. name is Kolashinsky. Mm-hmm. very Polish. Mike Lack, mm-hmm. I never would have guessed, but you say that's like the, the Smith last yeah, name in Poland? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of obviously Polish last names, but a lot with ending with Ski or Ak. Um, so yeah, my my family's originally from the Lebatowa area of Poland. So it's like the southern, western, southern area. It's It's been other countries too for uh, throughout history, but um, it's in Poland right now. And um, yeah, they actually have an area called Michalakakova, which is like the the cove of the Michalax, which is very jarring as an American, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so anybody that's watching behind Stephanie, she's got this, this beautiful background that says all over it. uh, Is it pronounced August or Auguste? Auguste. Yeah. Auguste, Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts, and uh, where Stephanie, you're the lead culinary instructor for the plant-based program there, which is which is very very cool. Which is why I'm having you on the show because I've never had a lead culinary chef instructor before, and I thought it'd be fascinating to find out how you became a lead culinary chef instructor you know, your passion for plants, how that all started. So I'd love to just start out by, let's just go back to the beginning and then doing a little research. I know that you've loved plants since you were a very little girl growing up on your 
parents, your grandparents' farm where they sold raspberries and pussy willows. Yep. <laughs> Very Eastern European thing to do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where where did your grandparents have their farm? So I grew up on the East Coast. So um, I was born and raised in Connecticut. Um, so my grandmother and grandfather were in um, Berlin, uh, Connecticut. So it's kind of in the middle of the state. And essentially, they loved growing raspberries. So just rows and rows of it. Uh, they also grew small things for their own sustenance, like zucchini and things like that. And we had a, a walnut tree that we used to harvest from, but mostly the raspberries were for production and selling. So um a different time period where I could uh, happily sell them on the side of the road and it wasn't an issue would probably be a problem now. <laughs> what, right. What, what exactly are pussy willows? Yeah. So pussy willows are trees and basically they're the buds. They look like little cotton pails. Um, oh, so yeah. in particularly Catholic, uh, like Easter time, uh, you harvest just the the branches. They're really beautiful as sort of an ornamental item for like tablescapes and things like that. But basically they're twigs with little cotton balls on them. It, mm. That sounds way less enticing than they actually look, but uh, yeah, it's, it's ornamental. Would you say that's where you kind of got your, your, were introduced to your love of food? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I think about my childhood and how it kind of brought me into plant-based uh, in a couple different ways. So my my love of agriculture certainly started with my grandparents and, and harvesting raspberries with them and uh, seeing that abundance of color and flavor and just the, the vibrancy that happens with something that's peak and in season. It's something super magical that I think in, unless you have that experience and know how that's viscerally impactful to you, it's really difficult to emulate that. Um, so for me, it's just raw produce certainly came from them. My grandmother, bless her heart, she's a terrible cook. Mm. Very, very post-depression era, cooks to everything until it's dead, died over twice, put a stick of margarine on it and you're good to go. <laughs> so it was not my most uh, foodie time period of my life. Uh, that being said, my mother is an avid cook. Uh, she's a phenomenal cook. So I got my love of cooking from her, but uh, as far as agricultural kind of zeal from my grandparents. So, Well, it sounds like in some ways then your, your grandmother was really the impetus because she was such an awful cook. Yes. Actually, <laughs> candidly, I used to joke about that. I, I must have been seven or eight years old. I remember pestering my parents that I wanted to go vegetarian. And, and this was way before people were really, you know, vegetarian was not a hot thing to do, nor would an eight-year-old really be looking at that. I would think it's pre-social media time. Uh, but I remember being so gung-ho, like, I want to be vegetarian. I don't really want to eat meat, probably because my grandmother was so terrible at cooking it. But I also just, like, I knew my body wasn't really leaning towards that. So my mother's a great cook, but she's like, I'm not cooking a separate meal just for you. So you got to learn how to cook on your own before it, you can go vegetarian. So I, you know, as an eight-year-old, I'm like, I can make spaghetti. It's probably not, it's probably not a healthy way to live. So I, I chose not to go vegetarian at eight, but I remember distinctly as a little kid being like, this is, I'm drawn to this. So if you weren't, if you didn't go vegetarian at eight, how old were you when you decided to make the leap? You know, so it's funny. I went vegetarian at 14, uh, actually off of a bet. Um, so a, I went to a boarding school uh, for high school and uh, I was playing competitive ultimate Frisbee uh, and we were training for the season. Uh, and a friend of mine, we, I don't know how we got on the topic, but we're like, oh, 
being vegetarian is going to help our performance. So we're going to, we're going to do this. Uh, and basically we made a bet to see who could be vegetarian longer. Um, it very quickly turned into veganism for me within a couple months. Uh, and at the time too, it was really digging into understanding the food system and, and actually getting very mad at the United States for where our food was and uh, the quality of the food that we're consuming. So I pretty pretty quickly felt much better being vegetarian and then vegan. So it, it was just kind of a natural progression, but it started with a bet actually. <laughs> did you, did you happen to win that bet? I, I think I did. Yeah. I, I think she caved quite quickly and I was purely vegan for over a decade. So um, I would say I won that one. <laughs> I didn't so win anything, but my health. <laughs> so you, you, so you say that as you started to research and look into mm-hmm kind of our food system in the United States, you got a little bit disgruntled. Can you specifically say what were some of the things that you were upset about? Was it how produced, processed, distributed? It was a myriad of pretty much everything, honestly. Um, You know, at the time, I think the omnivore dilemma had just come out. uh, And Michael Pollan is a great writer to begin with and kind of opened my eyes as a 15 year old to like understanding how much there is that we need to know about our food before it even hits our plates or hits our grocery store. Um, So for me, it was an environmental portion that our food is traveling way farther than it really should be. Um, At the time, I was really interested also in understanding agricultural history. Um, So looking at like Silent Spring in the 70s and 80s, kind of the Green Revolution. So for me, it was uh, realizing the monocropping that was happening Mm -hmm. or that had happened and understanding how that was degenerating our soil. So for me, it was it was mostly environmentalism that really throttled me to get so pissed off. That seems pretty precocious for a 14, 15, 16-year-old to be, you know, doing that kind of research and coming to those kind of conclusions. Good for you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I was, I was a, my mother liked to say I was eight going on 32, so I can only imagine what age I was going on as a teenager. (laughs) So So let's, 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 let's dive into, Mm -hmm. so college for whatever reason wasn't for you. and, And I think it's great that you were insightful enough to realize, you know what, this is not, for me, it's just not my path, but it sounds like you knew that maybe culinary school was. And so what what did that path look like and where did you go to school? So, you know, I I went to a private, like I said, a private boarding school for high school. And I actually uh, spent a semester up in Maine working on an organic farm. Um, (laughs) It was uh, called um, Chwanky back in the day. I think it's just called Maine Coast Semester now, but really focused on ecology. And I kind of found my independence there and recognizing that even high school wasn't really for me. So I went to college a year early and the college I went to was Bard College at Simons Rock. Great yeah. school. Um, I ended up working in a restaurant in Great Barrington called Allium. I was the, the prep cook, garmage, pastry, they put me on whatever um, and made fun of me for being vegan. But we lived through all those times as a vegan in the culinary industry. And, you know, it, I loved my classes there. Liberal arts is amazing. And I'm an avid learner. But for me, it was like, that's not where I see my career going. Um, so I decided after a year there that I would transfer to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. So I uh, transferred over to New York. So you went to the culinary school. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long was that? And did you enjoy it? 
Yeah, so um, it's the acronym is the CIA or the Culinary Institute of America, um, which is funny if you say it too quickly, people think you, you're part of the government. I'm like, it's <laughs> very different. Um, I loved it. it. It was, I love my alma mater. They were great. I went there for my associates and my bachelor's and stayed on as a TA. Um, I did go through the program completely vegan. So I worked off of sight, touch and smell, which is very different than what most people do going through culinary school. Uh, and for me, I didn't have a problem working with animal products because it was, you know, as somebody who wanted to be a professional chef, I knew I would have to cook for people who were not vegan. Um, so I was okay with that process, but I just didn't feel right about consuming it myself at the time. And um, so I, I learned how to cook in a very different way, unless it was vegan, then obviously I would taste it. But mm. um, it was, it was amazing. Tons of information, really great people. But I will say that there were some challenges. Um, a lot of the chef instructors actually were great about it and, and understanding. Um, some of my classmates actually were uh, not so much. I'm sure they are now, but uh, back then, over 10 years ago, I mean, they, it's just, it was a different time period where people were like, what do you do? Or like, what do you eat? I'm like, well, I photosynthesize. What do you think I do? You know, it's, <laughs> it's it was yeah. a different time um, as far as uh, plant-based eating or vegan cooking. Um, so I did a little, little bit of harassment there, um, but it, it was a different part of the industry, different time in the industry. So I think things are finally changing, which is great to, to yeah. see photosynthesize, or, you know, you could also tell me you were a breathitarian and you get right. this ne nectar drip going in the back of your brain. Just, I like from, it just from the air. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just nourishing myself with sensors. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yeah, exactly. Why not? Well, we can completely change human anatomy and overnight. Right. Um, <laughs> No, it was, it was great exposure. Um, I think there's definitely something to be said about learning classical culinary techniques. At the same time, even when I was a student, I'm like, there's so many cool things we could do with vegetables that back then, like it wasn't a part of the curriculum. So uh, it was stuff that I worked on on the side. I worked for a vegan food delivery service when mm. I was in school. So I was still trying to find my way um, in, in plant-based cooking outside of uh, culinary school, but also in culinary school and getting those foundations. So I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was just a very different time in my life, for sure. Wow. Yeah, I'm finding, <laughs> this, I'm finding this to be really fascinating um, mm -hmm. that you were able to navigate the CIA um, using, as you said, you know, sight, touch, and smell mm -hmm. um, and not tasting it just because you wanted to hold hold true to your, your beliefs regarding, you know, veganism. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's really, really cool. Um, and so how, how, how long was that CIA? Was that two years? Yeah. So the associates is two years and then the bachelor's program afterwards is two more years. I did take um, a hiatus for a year and uh, moved to Germany and worked in the wine world. Um, mm -hmm which being vegan in Germany is also an interesting <laughs> process. I think it's also still a little bit, it's probably different now, but um, back in 2012, it was still a little difficult to find uh, items, but beyond tofu, if you wanted to find, you know, something yeah. besides raw veggies and lentils and grains, which are amazing. And what I subsisted off anyway, but it was a little sometimes monotonous with, with what I could purchase, <laughs> but I was also on a, very raw budget um, because I was an unpaid intern. So did you get your master's in food studies? Yeah. So I um, 
after my undergrad, I stayed on as a sort of a teaching assistant or a manager in training. Um, and then I decided to go to uh, New York University for my master's. So the master's program is in food studies, an MA. Um, and they kind of had two different tracks. Either you focused on culture or food systems. And at the time in my life, I was really focused on the cultural side of it. Systems are obviously a big part of my personal history and something I really love to explore too. Mm. But I felt like at that point in my life, I'd explored it, maybe not enough because there's still so much more I could learn about it, but I really wanted to focus on the cultural side. So that's what I really leaned into. Mm. Are you, am I correct? Are you working on your doctorate right now? Yeah. Yeah. So for somebody who didn't think college was for them, apparently I've become, <laughs> <laughs> become a lifelong yeah. student. Um, yeah. So I'm working on my EDD, which is um, a doctorate of higher education leadership. Um, I just defended a few weeks ago, but I have a little bit more coursework to do, which is different than a PhD track, which kind of does coursework first and then your dissertation and all that good stuff. But yeah, my um, research is heavily focused on looking at institutional initiatives, addressing food insecurity. Um, so from a higher education lens, um, without it being too technical, basically I interviewed a bunch of administrators who run basic needs programs uh, to understand kind of what their processes are like and what their lived experiences are. So when you say food insecurity at higher education, are you mm -hmm. talking about all the starving students that are living on ramen noodles? Yes, that is exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. We, I think, um, at least when I was going through my undergrad, it was kind of this, everyone was a starving student. That was the normal, like it was normalized and it shouldn't be normalized um, because you can't function when you're not being nourished. Like there's, there's no way you can be academically set. I mean, there's ways to be academically successful, but it's substantially more difficult to do anything if you're malnourished. Yeah. And um, it, we've kind of decided uh, as a culture that, you know, you're in college for a short period of time. So you can kind of grit through it with free pizza and ramen noodles, but that's not, it's not true. It's also people are still, people still have an idea that higher ed is predominantly students coming straight out of high school. And we have substantially more non-traditional students than we've ever had in higher ed. So most of them are financially independent and it's become even more severe and uh, we're not talking about it enough. So I'm talking about it more. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds kind of like, you know, the way medical students uh, it just seems to be the rite of passage that you go through medical school and you get, or I should say maybe internship and residency mm -hmm. And you get abused and you're sleeping three, four, five hours a night and just these insane schedules kind of maybe similar with, um, you know, some, some students going to, going to, going to college and um, really not fueling themselves in, in the best way. Right. Yeah. So a couple of years back, I helped, or I ran a teaching kitchen on an organic farm in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, we used to do, uh, mindfulness retreats for some of the uh, medical students that are at uh, University of Cincinnati. And um, so my portion was always focused on the kitchen side. So uh, we'd always talk with the med students about, you know, that kind of that triangle of like, you got to sleep, you have to eat, but you have to also have to do school. And sometimes people obviously mm. choose, to, you you only choose two, not three, which I think is crazy, but it's it's kind of one of those we all have a good chuckle at it, but it's, it's almost not right. Um, actually it's not right. But at the same time, a lot of med students don't 
necessarily know that, you know, they're living on a budget as interns uh, or, you know, as medical students, and they're going to have patients and clients that go through that same thing. And if they don't know how to feed themselves as med students, how are they going to advocate for their patients and clients years later? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yep. Exactly. We'll get right back to the delicious chat that I'm having with Chef Stephanie. But first, let's dig into the mailbag for another Plant Strong proof letter that I received several months ago from a gentleman named John. And John writes, Dear Rip and the Esselstyn family, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for helping me turn my life around. I have lost over 50 pounds in nine weeks. I just had my annual checkup and lab work, and both my doctor and I were amazed. I am off Valsartan for high blood pressure, and it's actually a little on the low side now. No more Pravastatin, no more Zedia, and no more stomach pills for indigestion. My lab results are living proof of this incredible nine-week journey thus far. On behalf of myself, my wife, and my daughter, Thank you, Rip. All I got to say is congrats, John. Way to take the kale by the stock and, uh, and make it happen. It is beyond rewarding to hear from listeners like you who have taken the good news about plant-based nutrition and put it to work for them. And speaking of titrating off meds like John was able to do, I want you to know if you're on meds, one of the great benefits of attending one of our immersion retreats is having our incredible medical team on hand to monitor our guests as they transition to eating only whole plants. And it is remarkable how quickly the human body can heal itself when fueled the right way. And in as little as three or four days, we often are adjusting medications and sending our guests home with a note for their providers. If you'd like to take part in one of our retreats, we only offer them twice a year. Our next event will be in Sedona, Arizona from October 10th to the 15th. Visit the show notes or our website, plantstrong.com for all the details. We'd love to have you join us. Let's talk about Escoffier. Yeah. So when was it that you landed at Escoffier and when did they introduce this terrific plant-based culinary program? Yeah, so I started at Escoffier May of 2020. So basically at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah. lovely time to uh, shift a little bit in my career, which is, is great. Um, I have been working on... Uh, originally, I was a subject matter expert for developing some of the courses for the plant-based program, um, but we officially launched it in July of 2021. So, um, so we've had students since July of 2021 in the plant-based program, but um, it's been under development for a couple of years. So I kind of came in at the right time, um, and they so happen to find out that I have some plant-based experience, at least I would hope <laughs> that I do, and um, have been you know, working on making sure that uh, we've got a really robust program that helps students be successful in their career and understand it from a plant-based lens rather than a more traditional uh, route, just because 
at least for me, that, that was amazing to be a part of because it's what I wanted as a culinary student. And I never had that opportunity. Well, I would imagine that most of the students that are doing, <clears throat> going through the program are able to see it, touch it, smell it and taste it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is nice. Yeah. It's um, especially when you're, because our, our online students, you know, they're cooking in their own homes and taking the photos of their processes so that their chef instructors can give them really detailed feedback on, you know, you did this really well, but let's adjust this or the consistency was just a little kind of off. So I'm going to have you reduce it more if you ever make this again. So it's really detailed feedback, but yeah, if you're making stuff at your own home, you kind of want to be able to eat it. Otherwise it's like, yeah. (laughs) So you jumped in right at the beginning of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and uh, you guys, I guess, pivoted from all being, you know, live to online. How do you feel the online course is being received? Do you think it's effective for the students? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because um, pretty much all of higher ed had to transition online regardless. Yeah. Um, and luckily, Escoffier actually had, a, even pre-plant-based, a, our culinary and pastry programs were offered online. So we didn't have to pivot mm. nearly as much as a lot of other institutions. And both of our campus, Austin, Boulder, we already had a learning management system. Like we had stuff in place. So it was much easier for them to transition their on-ground campus students to more of a hybrid or online environment for the time that they needed to do that. I will say online education, like I'm working my doctorate virtually. My institution is in St. Louis. I am certainly not driving there anytime soon. I will for graduation, but that's pretty much it. Um, So I think it's it provides a lot of more access and opportunity, um, which is an amazing thing because if somebody has dreams to do something with their career, they should be able to find a way to do that. Um, And sometimes uh, higher ed can be cost prohibitive uh, and stop people from actualizing their dreams. So um, I having our online program has actually been very beneficial because it tends to be a little less expensive uh, than on-ground campuses. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and it's flexible too. So, yeah. How has it been received? Has there, has there been um, interest in the plant-based uh, mm-hmm. program? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been amazing. Uh, we have our first cohort Mighty, but many at this point, but they, uh, they're, they're crushing it. The students are amazing. They uh, have, we, we have students, honestly, across the world in, in our courses. Um, the plant-based program is substantially smaller right now in population size than culinary, but it's, it's really gaining traction. And uh, honestly, the student work is so great to see because they're really diving into it and, and having a great time. That's so fantastic to hear. And I, I, I can't think of a better time to be launching mm-hmm. right, a, a plant-based culinary program. What are you finding is your demographic as far as you know, male, female, age range, ethnicity? It's a little all, all, all over the place. I will say generally there's a few more females in the plant-based program than males. Um, also, when you're looking at the demographics of higher ed, they, they are shifting more female heavy across the board. So it's it's interesting to kind of see parallels there. Um, ages all over the place, uh, which is great. You know, we, we have some students who are, you know, 18 to 20, and we have some students who are in their late 50s. It's really any time is good to go to culinary school, depending on what you want to do with your career. So it's really great to see um, an expansion of ages and then you know, um, 
as far as demographics, backgrounds, they're, they're kind of all over the place. Um, but I think that's the coolest thing is that we have such a diverse student population. So, in doing my research, I saw that, and help me again, his yeah. name is Auguste. Auguste Escoffier. Auguste yeah. Escoffier. He's considered the founder of modern cooking. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a a pretty good title right there right? and, and it, <laughs> he's basically like established the the um the basics in culinary when it comes to innovating techniques and methodologies and foods mm-hmm. and so how, how long has escoffier been around do you know when when the cooking school was like founded yeah so um as far as our online program and our programs have been around for a little over eight years now um so as far as an online school, we actually have a, a long history, which is awesome um Auguste Escoffier himself obviously is much longer, and there's an amazing legacy um so we're trying to do him justice. He's kind of known as the king of chefs or the chef of kings uh it's a uh is he dead? Anyone- is yeah, he he's, he's, he's passed away at this point. <laughs> it's, it's been a few years, but um, his family's legacy is is phenomenal. Um, and we're very blessed to um, kind of have his family's blessing to use his name, um, which uh, is, is such an honor uh, mm. because of the the <clears throat> role he's played in the culinary industry. I mean, there are, there are a lot of um, predominant chefs who have impacted the industry greatly, but Escoffier is one of the biggest uh, when we talk about foundational culinary techniques, he was kind of a part of it, uh, helped kind of craft the brigade system, which is how most mm. restaurants are run. So um, you know, he's kind of the who's who uh, when it comes to long-term yeah. chefs. So it's, it's, it's an honor to have um, the school named after him. So, so in, 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 you know, my take on it is chefs are just gluttons for punishment. I mean, it seems like... <laughs> No, literally, it seems like you work insane hours. You get up, I don't know, four or four thirty in the morning. You, unless you go out and get to meet the the customers, you don't. You're not getting kind of you know the slaps on the back and the you know way to go. It it just seems like an absolutely brutal profession. Why do you think people go into it, and what are they trying to get out of it? Um, I mean, I. I love cooking, but I don't think I could do what you guys do. You know, it's, it's funny. There are, I think there are a handful of different reasons why people become chefs or want to become chefs. I, I do remember, like I, even as a kid, I mused about having restaurants. I certainly do not want a restaurant now. It's the financial equity on it now, no. but um, for me, the, the pull was honestly nourishing other people and cooking for other people. And um this really impacting their life in a way that I otherwise couldn't, which, you know, I, you have to have kind of perspective that like you are impacting other people's lives. Cause if you're in a kitchen where you're not seeing the customers mm-hmm. uh, that there are open kitchens, I've worked in plenty of open kitchens. I've worked in front of the house just as much as the back of the house candidly. So I've, I've had those clients, uh, guest experiences, but you don't always get them. And, um, you know, some people don't actually, they're more driven by the creativity of the food and connecting with the food and creating mm. something that calls to them and they get to play, you know, um, I will say there's a lot of really hard work, but we play pretty hard too. So um, I think for a lot of people, that's how they kind of get into this profession is because they find a flow, they find something they're really good at. And there's, 
there's a lot of stress. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of careers with a lot of stress, but as, as chefs, you know, we have long hours, we're on our feet all the time. You might have a distributor that doesn't bring you anything of what you ordered because of a shortage or because something got messed up and now you have to re-figure out everything or a refrigerator mm-hmm. goes down and all your food is gone. Somebody calls off and now you're washing dishes, but also doing orders. You know, th- things happen literally all the time, but some people like that dynamicism that comes with it, yeah. always being on your toes. So I wait, will say we're kind of a special bunch of people that... Um... <laughs> I bet. You really are a special breed. No doubt about it. But I like what you said there about, you know, doing it because you really inherently you want to nourish people. Mm-hmm. I think also you get, if you're creative, it's a really, it's a, probably a great creative outlet. It allows you mm-hmm. to flex your creative muscles in a way that's very maybe unique to your personality, right? Right. And I, I know just from working with Derek and Chad Sarnow, who are both mm-hmm. great plant-based chefs, they both have their own, you know, kind of style and different in different plant-based foods they love to work with and get attached with. Um, so it, it, it yeah. And it, you're always innovating. You're always learning. I mean, that, that seems very, very exciting. It is, you know, it's, it's one of the industries that you can, you can become stagnant, the, the obvious, like with anything else. But um, I think that's the greatest thing for most chefs is that there's always something to tweak. There's always something to play with. There's more ingredients to expose yourself to. There's different ways to play with an ingredient that you've always worked with. So there's always something more to learn. Um, and that's candidly one of the most common sayings we have um, at Escoffier when we're talking to our students is it's not about perfection, it's progression. And mm-hmm. even as chef instructors, we're always trying to progress because none of us are perfect and none of us know all the answers. Um you know, most people find that the more you find out, the less, you know, so <laughs> I like to think that's a big part of being a chef too, is, is knowing that you will never know everything about food and playing. around. With it. So, well, I think, I think that what you just said is so true in just about everything in life Yeah, keeps us on us t- on our toes always. Uh, so I, w- I want to fire some questions sure. at you, put you on the spot a little bit here. So what, what are some for our listeners that are out there that are either, you know, deep into plant-based or just getting into plant-based, what would you say are some basic cooking utensils, uh, tools that mm-hmm. you know, almost every kitchen should have? Uh, definitely cutting board, a sharp chef knife, make sure to have both a honing steel and um, sharpening stone. Most people do not know how to sharpen mm-hmm. knives. And um, generally speaking, that's when you cut yourself is when you have a dull knife. Um, and generally people, people don't have those. And then you have the, the knives you've had in your house for a decade that like start bending and warping and they're not good for anything, especially root veggies. Nobody wants to cut a celery act with a dull knife. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. So um, cutting board knife, um, honestly, you do not need 10,000 knives. You just need a good one, maybe mm. a herring knife and a bread knife. Um, I yeah, Like as a chef, I have tons of knives. I have a cleaver that I bought in Dusseldorf, Germany for three euros that like I will never give up, but it's, you don't need it. You just need a sharp knife. <laughs> um, I would say definitely a really good saute pan. Um what kind of what kind of pan do you have a particular pan you recommend? Do you like cast iron? Do you like you know green, green ca- pans? What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I like green pans just because there's so many things that people could you know line your 
pans with. And at some point they start to deteriorate and we don't really need those in our food, but um, cast irons are also really great because they're super durable. Um, They take a while for the heat to transfer or kind of warm up the cast iron itself, but it stays hotter longer after it starts to heat up. So, so what do you, so if that's the case, what do you recommend? Do you recommend before you put anything in it or depending upon what you're cooking, Mm -hmm. you, you let it sit for like a couple minutes. Yeah. You don't have to have it for multiple minutes, but definitely preheating a little bit, especially if you're trying to like sear something off. Like if you wanted to sear off a, you know, beautiful piece of tofu, or if you wanted to sear, uh, I don't know why I'm thinking about rutabaga right now, but it's still kind of winter here. So if you wanted to sear some rutabaga and you wanted that beautiful sear on it, like if it's not hot, it's not going to do anything. You're just going to, right. you know, steam it. It's <laughs> just not the point. So yeah, heating up a cast iron can definitely help get you to where you okay. need to be. Um, you know, I, I think a good set of um, bowls can be very beneficial. You don't have to go crazy with all of the gadgets in the world, but for plant-based, I love my Vitamix or high-speed blender just because mm-hmm. there's so many awesome sauces you can make with um, soaked cashews or soaked macadamia nuts. And it just gives it such a beautiful, delicate consistency. Um, so I would say for me, a blender is definitely a go-to, um, but you don't need like, you know, five of them. I feel like some people get kind of aggressive with yeah. what they acquire. <laughs> yeah. Simple, simple is better. <laughs> So I don't know if you how much you know about the plant strong philosophy, but we're not particularly fans of adding oils when mm-hmm. we cook. Yeah. You know, we try and do low sodium, mm-hmm. low sugar, always, you know, when we can whole whole grains. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to give you a little background on that, but I am not a fan of eggplant. So could you create an eggplant dish that I would like? You know, so eggplant can be finicky because depending on the time in which you harvest eggplant, also the varietal, some of them are more bitter. Um, so what, do you, let me ask you, what do you not like about eggplant? The texture, it, it, the texture. it, it, it it's, it's rubbery, it's styrofoamy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I find it frankly to be kind of tasteless and, um, yeah, I just, I've, I've never, there's maybe one time when I had one of those thin purple Chinese eggplants. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. But, but it also, if I'm going to, if I'm going to like an eggplant, it needs to be cooked. It's like a, like a mushroom, like a portobello mushroom. Yep. It needs to be really cooked really co- and yeah. get all that water out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, you know, like the, the longer Japanese style eggplants, they're going to have a different flavor than like the big globe Italian eggplants. So knowing like that there's some amazing Thai eggplants that are smaller, so they all have different flavors to it. And honestly, when you have eggplants that have kind of uh, grown too far, they get really big seeds, they start to get bitter. They're also kind of bloated a little bit more water. So, um, so picking the right eggplant can be, can go a long way to begin with. Um, from there, I would say if you're not particularly a fan of the texture, um, actually roasting them whole over an open fire can be really great because you char off the exterior, it steams the inside, and you can puree it into really beautiful mm. sauces or spreads. Like basically, that's the base of baba ganoush. Yeah. Um, so it's it's luscious. It becomes nice and creamy, um, really lovely, and compare really well with like uh, I like tahini. Um, it's kind of heavier on the um, fat side, but it's blends really well with some lemon juice and tahini, some garlic as well. And it's just a beautiful spread. So I think you, I think I would like that. Nice. I definitely do. Yeah. Awesome. Like, I like that idea about roasting it on the fire, 
taking out the inside, doing a little baba ganu or some other sauce. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that way, you know, because I, I candidly, I have had undercooked eggplant. It's like, it's yeah. just not, it's not pleasant. It's yeah. just not the right way to do it. <laughs> well, are you, are you a fan of um, eggplant squashes, mushrooms? Yeah, I am. I, you know, it's funny for me, I'm kind of particular with eggplant as well. Like I'll take um, smaller eggplants or like the Japanese longer style eggplants, cut them in half um, and slice them kind of on a bias so that they have kind of a grid and then do um, a miso and maple glaze and roast it like that. Um, so that it's got kind of this sweet umami unctuousness to it. And then if you roast it long enough too, it gets kind of nice and supple. So it's not that rubbery, plasticky type of texture. So for me, that's a great way that I like eggplant besides roasted. Um, you know, summer squash, I love during the summer. Uh, this is obviously not the right time of the season for for me. Um, and candidly, when I have it, when it's undercooked, it actually doesn't make me feel great. Mm. Um, so I kind of avoid dishes where it's just gently sauteed. Um, but my grandmother also used to like cook squash until it was decimated. So I try to find a nice happy medium in my life nowadays. Um, <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do you like? Acorn, butternut, kabucha. You got a favorite uh, squash. So winter squash. I love winter squash. Um, huh? You know, butternut is, is kind of ubiquitous. Like you can find it everywhere um, and you can do so much with it. Like I love making risotto with um, some roasted butternut squash. I'll puree mm. some of it to get it kind of that creamy lusciousness to go along with the starches releasing from the arboreal rice. But then I'll take cubed pieces of butternut squash as well. So you get the creaminess of it, but then you also get kind of the beautiful mm. roasted notes and top it with some um, toasted pumpkin seeds or something like that. You could also arguably harvest the seeds from the butternut squash, but that's kind of a long drawn out process. So usually that's, that's not my evening, my, you know, midweek meal, but um, yeah, butternut squash. I love just because it's, it's how prevalent it is, but um, you know, Kubota is great at slightly different texture. It's, it's a little, I find kind of deeper in flavor. It's not just at like that sweet initial note to it. So um, Hubbard squash is too really mm. beautiful texture. Hubbard yeah. squash isn't isn't a Hubbard squash. Is that is that similar to a kabocha or a, or a, just a pumpkin in general? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, it's kind of like it's a little bit more. I find it to be more dense. Uh-huh. It's denser. Also, the skin is quite thick, so it's kind of a hassle to to harvest. But um, yeah, it's mm. a little bit hardier, I would say. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to. Just plain old rice. Do you have a favorite rice that you like to cook with short grain, long grain, basmati? Yeah, it kind of depends on what I'm cooking it with because I'm generally not just eating rice. You know, I, thought, <laughs> I like, like sure. lentils or some beans or something like that. So, um, you know, if I'm going for something like a pilaf method, which um, usually is a little bit of oil at the beginning, you arguably can do it without oil, but it helps protect some of the grains. You don't have to go crazy about that, though. And then um, basically add just enough liquid uh, for for rice. It would be a one to two ratio. Bring it up to a simmer, cover it, and they become nice and light and fluffy. It reminds people of like birani um, mm. from Indian cooking. Um, or, you know, short grain rice is, is great for making risotto if you've got arborio. Uh, or, you know, I do like making sushi every once in a while. So going for a short grain there. Yeah. Um, it kind of it just depends what I'm using the grains for. I personally really like working with um, 
other grains like millet and farro, just because there's so many mm, other flavors mm. and textures there. Um, so I like to expand beyond rice, but depends on the rice dish. <laughs> no, I hear you. So let's expand beyond the rice. Yeah. So you mentioned farro and millet. Mm-hmm. Let's amaranth. What a you know, barley. Um, I mean, do you have a favorite or it just depends upon the dish again? Seriously depend. I'm so mood dependent. It's terrible when people are like, what's your favorite dish to cook? And I'm like, well, it depends on who I'm cooking for. So I, uh, but I will say, you know, in the Cincinnati area that, that I'm in right now, um, you can actually find some local wheat berries. Um, mm. so if you can find local grains, that's an amazing way a, to contribute to your community and also reduce the, the length of, uh, you know, distance that your food is traveling. And there's, it's really awesome to have local grains. So um, here I can usually find wheat berries. So that's really great. Um, and, and sometimes during the summer I can get um, uh, Nick's tamal or uh, basically, um, why am I blanking on the term? Right. Basically, um, corn for making like tamales and things mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. um, apparently my brain is just kind it's of, not, out, but no, no, no. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever been to the chef's garden? I have. Uh, you yeah. Have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. They no. uh, farmer Lee is amazing. Yeah. 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 Farmer Lee. It, it's this amazing regenerative farm mm-hmm. um, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, about a mile and a half from the shores of Lake Erie. Yeah. Uh, the soil there is just phenomenal and, and the, and the different produce they're growing there is spectacular. Right. Yeah. We, we've done some things with them. Um, so, but, so speaking of the chef's garden, you know, they grow mm-hmm. some really incredible green leafies, mm-hmm. all kinds of different kales and Swiss chards and arugula. Do you have a favorite green leafy? Mm, is it you know- the mood again? It's the mood. It's the it's the mood. It's always it's, it's like which way is the sun pointing to right now? Um, I honestly, if I if I had to go to a fallback, I would say lastinado kale is something I always come back to just because of the consistency. Um, I also like the depth of flavor and the texture more than regular kale. But as I've I've worked on many farms, so if I can get my hands on some good beet greens or mm. some Swiss chard, especially rainbow chard. I am not going to pass it down. I love my greens. So, um, or yeah. sweet potato greens, uh, not very common, but, um, sweet potato greens kind of work a little bit like spinach. So, and they're really fun to work with. So, wow. Sweet potato greens. I don't know if I've ever had sweet potato greens, so that'll be interesting to try that. Yeah. Um, one of the things they, they did a, I think they called it an ice spinach that it, yeah. uh, it had a really high sugar content because mm-hmm. of the time of the year that it was grown and the temperatures. Mm-hmm. And it was like no spinach I've ever tried before. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. They're, they're, I think they just called ice spinach, but basically they're yeah. growing the spinach and it freezes and thaws, freezes, thaws. So basically it helps with that bricks content. And it's almost like making wine where the later yeah. you, you harvest the, the grapes, the more bricks content it has. So yeah, it's so fascinating that they're able to do that with spinach and basically create something that very few of us have ever experienced in our lives. So no, I, I'm so glad that you got to experience that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And in fact, last night, we, it was my birthday and, uh, birthday. thank you. Thank you. And we actually, for dinner, we had a great mulligatawny soup and we had, mm-hmm. we had a wild, wild rice. And then our side was blackened broccoli in the cast iron, mm-hmm. uh, skillet. 
uh, with just some like garlic granules, onion granules, mm-hmm. red chili flakes, a little mm-hmm. bit of salt and pepper. And then I threw in at the last, maybe the, for the last three minutes, some finely uh, diced up dinosaur kale, awesome. right? With, yeah. with the stem and yes. oh, I adored it. But my wife was like, oh, it's just a little too bitter for me. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I love this. I think it's so much better than just plain old curly kale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, bitterness can get people though. Like I, I will say, especially in my later teens, I'm like, I love the idea of broccolini. I love it now, but back then my palate was just like, that's yeah. too bitter. Like even radicchio was like, oh, I can't. You know, see, palates change over the years, but um, that was really difficult for me for for many years. Um, but trial yeah. and error. <laughs> what about a, what about arugula? You like the uh, the the rocket lettuce? You know, I love arugula. I like it more when it's baby arugula, though. It's not mm-hmm. as peppery. I do like the peppery note, but sometimes the larger arugula leaves can be really aggressive and it's hard to balance that out as a composed dish. Yeah. Um, I will say dandelion greens are fabulous, though. Like if you can mm. get dandelion greens in season, um, delicious. They're a little bit more bitter. Um, traditionally, and I don't recommend people do this just like on a whim, but you can actually harvest the dandelion roots and uh, make them into a beautiful tea. It's pretty anti-inflammatory, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not something to go in your backyard and find your dandelions and rip them up. A, you'll have a lot of holes in your backyard, but uh, B, it's, it's, it's much more of a process than that. It's, that was very simplified, but dandelion greens are, are awesome during the season. So. <laughs> yeah. I know whenever I am short on time and I want to get a quick meal, we, in Austin here, we just had sweet greens that yeah. came in. There's a couple of locations yeah. and I always, as my base, I always get arugula. I get a mm-hmm. huge bunch of arugula. I, I just love it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to put you on the spot again. So okay. we're going to go to your local fire station. We're going to cook for the guys and the gals that work there. Typically very meat heavy, right? Mm meat and potatoes type uh, diets usually for these people, mm-hmm. these firefighters, you're going to cook them up something that hopefully is going to wow their palates and get them to be really interested in plant-based. It probably needs to have a bit of, you know, an umami mm-hmm. uh, back, backbone to it. What are you going to make for these guys and gals? You know, I, so my, candidly, my father's a firefighter. He's retired now, but, um, he, wow. yeah, he was a firefighter in West Hartford, Connecticut for 25 plus years. So, um, so I'm kind of used to the fact that he's a very safe eater. <laughs> he, safe. I did not get my love of, of, uh, ex- expanding my palate for my father. I love him for many other things, but his, uh, food prowess is not one of those, but, um, you know, I, I'm I'm so used to hearing stories about like lasagnas and you know just very carb meat heavy dishes barbecue things like that but meatloaf 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 you know well you're you're feeding the whole station it's it's an undertaking and it's a whole process I mean um, so you know. I kind of have to lean into my Polish heritage and go for I would do sweet potato pierogi it's a little bit different than a traditional pierogi but really um, still hearty enough because I mean, being a firefighter is an intense job and there's, I, you know, somebody's on watch in the middle of the night, like everybody's system is all out of whack. <laughs> so um, I would probably go with pierogi with some caramelized onions, probably do a big 
uh, whole grain salad on the side with a bunch of greens in it. Um, probably go for like a lemon vinaigrette just to bring some mm-hmm. brightness into it. Uh, and then, you know, round it out with some brownies, you know, you got to make sure oh, to have yeah. like something kind of homey. So yeah. it's not too estranged, especially for people who may not be used to plant-based cooking. You got to find that middle ground, you know, get them to think about it, but not. Nice. <laughs> do, you, do you make a, uh, a, a good plant-based brownie? I do. So I, I have a couple of different versions. Um, one is pretty coconut oil heavy, so mm-hmm. not really great for plant strong, but I do like doing one with roasted sweet potatoes because it adds a gentle sweet note to it. And it actually gives it more of that fudgy oh. note to it. Yeah. So I do one with roasted sweet potato puree, flaxseed meal, um, dark cocoa powder. Usually I melt in, um, non-dairy chocolate as well. So yes. I, you I, think, <laughs> so do you think we, you could share that with us and we could include Absolutely. that in, in the show notes for yeah. this podcast? Absolutely. Oh that would be fantastic. Let's plan on doing that. Um, what, so you mentioned your father was a firefighter. Did you say it was East Hartford? West Hartford. West, yes. West Hartford. Actually, that's where my brother lives now. Um, what, um, where is he because of your kind of passion for plants? Is he plant-based? Is your, he and your mother or? Yeah. So my, my dad, you know, grew up with my grandmother who doesn't know really how to cook very well. So, I mean, he's very utilitarian about eating. So he's, he's grown a lot, I think probably due to the fact that I'm in the hospitality industry um, where I remember uh, must have yeah. been like, you know, 15, 16 at the time we went to a Japanese restaurant and he's like, I don't know what to do. So <laughs> uh, he's a very safe eater still. So he still consumes animal products, but he's definitely expanded his palate. Um, him mm-hmm. and his, his wife, uh, his, his wife actually has uh, diabetes. So she's very particular about her diet as well. Um, so that they lean more, they do more plant-based now, but they, they are certainly not plant-based. Yeah. I, I can't attribute that. My mother, um, she very much is very plant forward. She's a big foodie, but yeah, she's, I, I got my love of cooking from her, but she and I have, have different eating patterns still. So got but, it. yeah. So got it. what, a, let's talk mangoes. Do you like mangoes? I love mangoes. Sometimes they can be a little stringy. So you got to find the right one, one that's nice and, uh, you know, Yep. ripe, but super luscious. I, I love the consistency. You can do so many different things with mango. You can. Do you have a favorite way of like cutting a mango, peeling a mango, serving? Yeah. A mango? yeah. So I know some people like to do the crosshatch and scoop it out. Personally, what I like to do is, you know, how the mangoes have that oblong shape. So you cut the top and the bottom off and I use a knife just to peel the exterior. Cause sometimes if you've got a peeler kind of yeah. locks up on the skin. Um, so I just try to get super close cause I don't want to, I don't want to take too much off no. of the that, mango. That, so exactly. It, I'm like, it, it, it's orange gold, right? Exactly. So I use my chef's knife and just work around the mango that way after cutting the flat surface. And then from there, you can actually see the kind of the oblong seed from the top and then you cut around the seed. So you're trying to maximize. And typically I don't do this if I'm serving other people, but if I'm at home and I've got the core of the mango, you just kind of gnaw on it a little bit. So you get the the core part of the mango. So I actually, I posted on my Instagram channel Mm -hmm. a couple of days ago, how to, 
kind of peel a mango with your hand. So I, I cut, I, you know, I cut it along the seed mm-hmm. and then I take it and I go along the outside and then I just peel it back. Right. I love it. Love and it. I, yeah. It's like this great, almost pear, a pear mm-hmm. of a, of a huge chunk. And right. I love snacking on that mm-hmm. as opposed to these little cubes, you know, that you do like, you know, Martha Stewart style and, and then turn it inside out and blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. But um, I had all these responses and I had several people say, Oh, I just eat the skin and all. I mean, have mm. you ever heard of people eating mango skin? You can. I find that it, it makes my tongue fuzzy and I don't particularly care for the texture. Um, also, you do want to think about like, what are the growing processes of that mango? Um, so right. it, it's a little, it's, it's the, usually the peel is a protection layer for a reason, but um, you can. <laughs> I'm not saying anybody can't, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when we were growing up, we got introduced to mangoes probably when I was in my, my teens and my brother, we would, I mean, we would just like go to town on making sure we got every little, little last mm-hmm. bit. And he started getting basically this red rash all around his mouth and we couldn't figure out what it was from. And my father finally said, you know what, we've been eating a lot of mangoes and it is a close cousin to poison ivy. So yep. you're having a reaction to that. And <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's funny how uh, I, I loved pineapples. I still love pineapples, but I would eat so much. You get the, you know, the prickly tongue and stuff like that. Arguably like some people will actually eat the peel of pineapple, which I find that's very rough. So and I would hope most people choose to take that off. But um, I think about it, like people eating the skin of the mango, kind of like kiwi, you technically can. Yeah. Well, why would you? <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's my opinion. I, you know, they, yeah. if, if somebody enjoys it, I'm not going to stop yeah. them from enjoying their food. <laughs> I actually have enjoyed eating the skin of the kiwi, but the mango is a whole nother beast <laughs> for sure. All right. I, I have a, um, well, a decision for you to make. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to say, Stephanie, you've got to eat one of three things, two eggs, however you want to prepare them a piece of skinless chicken breast or two ounces of cheddar cheese and you had to pick one, what would it be? Mm. Or could you just not do it? You know, if I had to pick, um, I had to pick. <laughs> just I, there's so many, like the, the chicken is absolutely out. I chicken and the texture and just the, uh-huh. the processes. I mean, there are ways to, to like raise chicken that's more humane yeah. and, you know, but um, that's generally like, not the chicken breast. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear your thoughts out loud. So, okay. That's how. Yeah. So yeah. for chicken, I mean, like I worked on, on, or on an organic farm and they were not plant-based. They had amazing produce and I really highlighted that, but they, and they had great regenerative agriculture. So they really focused on having, a, you know, very sustainable processes and humane processes for their animals. Um, still chicken is just like the texture. I mean, there's great ways to cook it, but it's just not, if I had to ever choose a plant, but like a non-plant-based item, that would not be it. <laughs> so that one's out. Um, uh, the eggs, I think it would really depend on where the eggs are coming from, just because like they're mm-hmm. mass produced eggs and same thing with dairy too. It's just like such a, minefield of terrible practices and um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And like cheddar cheese, hey, it kind of depends on the dairy. And then, then we're waiting to see where they're cheddaring this cheese. And, you know, so for me, it's like this long drawn process. Um, so I think ultimately, <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I would choose the cheddar just because it's at least been fermented okay. in a way. <laughs> you can maybe, maybe you could throw it into your, um, your sweet, but your roasted sweet potato brownies. <laughs> Just them in. Just get that sharp cheddar Just, flavor in there. <laughs> yeah. So do you find eating plant-based is expensive or economical? You know, it depends on how you eat plant-based. It really, I think a lot of people go, I can't be, I can't be plant-based. I can't be vegan because it's too expensive. And it's like, well, what are you choosing to eat? Mm-hmm. Because generally speaking, if you're going for whole foods, they're not that expensive, especially if you buy in bulk and especially if you're, buying raw ingredients and you're not buying prepackaged items. When you start going into prepackaged or um, very heavily prepared items, that's when it gets expensive. Uh, Although nuts are expensive. I will say that like the cashews are are a pretty penny sometimes. So it really just depends on the items. Like lentils are cheap. They're delicious. They're filling. You can make some, a lot of portions for very small price point. That being said, you know, if you're buying a ton of mangoes, if you're getting, you know, exotic fruits and vegetables, yeah, it's going to rack up. So it really depends on how you go about it. I would say it's economical, but that's also me knowing the prices of food. And arguably, I would still say, regardless of if the produce is expensive or not, it's cheaper in the long run for your health. Totally, totally. Yeah, I love telling people that, you know, potatoes, beans, bananas, frozen fruit, frozen veggies can be, I mean, really the most economical and, um, and healthy way to eat on the planet. Right. And it's not going to break, break your wallet. It really shouldn't. Um, where do you shop? You shop anywhere in particular? Um, you know, I, I kind of shop around. It depends on what I'm looking for. Um, uh, in the area that I'm in Kroger is one of the larger yep. grocery stores, um, back on the East coast, obviously stop and shop was the, the big to do. Um, I, you know, candidly whole foods have some really great products around here. We have a market called fresh time, um, which has some pretty good produce. Um, I also still like to buy from directly from farmers. We have a cool, um, kind of like food hub, uh, that you can order on online um, and they aggregate it from local farmers. Um, it's kind of more of a process, um, but they, you know, it's it's much easier to buy from farmers nowadays than it ever has been before. So um, it's a beautiful thing having the internet and delivery. Um, so it depends on what I'm looking for. Um, I yeah. post doctorate, I'm hoping to grow a little bit more myself too, to cut down on how much I'm purchasing outside of um that but right now i i don't have enough time to or i don't feel like i have the time to uh, allocate towards nurturing little yeah you know so so we're winding down here i just got a couple more questions for you hang in there you're doing amazing (laughs) so if we're trying to really cut back on our sodium and we Mm -hmm. tell people you know you really got to be careful about all the packaged boxed and canned goods Mm-hmm. But let's say at home, we also, we don't want to use much sodium when we're cooking. Do you recommend any spices or any ways of really enhancing the flavor without yeah. using excessive amounts of sodium? Yeah. So it's, you know, when you're cutting down on 
I mean, not all canned items are evil or anything like that, but generally speaking, if you have canned items like canned beans are tend to be high in sodium. Um, so if you're buying dried beans and soaking them yourself, A, it's cheaper, B, um, you're cutting down on sodium. So the minimizing how much you're eating that's processed or has gone through some type of processing will absolutely help. When it comes to spices, absolutely. You know, salt is only, it, and you know, there are other ways that we get sodium, but you know, they, our palate is much more than just salt and sugar. Um, we've got acidity, we've got umami, um, we've got that, you know, umami, that savory note. So in bitterness, so they all can interplay and they kind of dance on our palate and on our tongue. So infusing, you know, different spices, whether or not you want something warming. So maybe something mm-hmm. like cumin and cinnamon, um, you can certainly still have a little bit of salt in there, but it's going to give it so much more flavor than just be like, I'm just going to season it with salt and black pepper. Yeah. It's fine, but it's, it's very bland um, at the end of the day where, you know, if you're adding in smoked paprika, then you get that beautiful smoky note and that kind of fruitiness from the mm. pepper. Um, you, you can go for turmeric, which is very earthy. Uh, but then also thinking about, you know, when you're cooking something, adding some acid at the end brings in some sweetness and also some acidity. So like, so what's some acid, what's some acid that we could bring in? Give me some examples. Yeah. Lime juice, lemon juice. Arguably you could do something like orange juice, but it's on the sweeter side rather than acidic. You honestly could also do some vinegars like apple cider vinegar is actually a really great way to finish like cashew based sauces just because it gives it more depth. Um, I'm fortunate to have a local vinegar maker in the area as well. So sometimes I'll use some weird vinegars, like there's a corn vinegar that I can buy um, or you could make them yourself. I used to ferment a lot, but um takes over the house very quickly, but, um, you know, balancing out spices with also some acidity and thinking about the dish as a whole can help you really pull back on, on sodium and on salt. Yeah. What, what would you say are some spices that should be in every spice cabinet Mm. in, in in the plant-based listener that's listening right now? I would absolutely say cumin, coriander, cinnamon, Paprika. I am very particularly fond of smoked paprika. Candidly, it's just a personal preference. Well, it's, 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 the, Pol- it's the Polish in you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, turmeric. Definitely need turmeric. Uh, let me see. Dried herbs as well. You know, we can distinguish herbs and spices, but having like some dried thyme, bay leaves, oregano, you can do so many things like dried rosemary. Um, you can really prepare dishes across cuisines with a, kind of a small select, like, Cumin and coriander are used in so many different cultural dishes and they can taste widely differently. Um, dishes from you know Mexico that have cumin and, and coriander are going to be drastically different than Indian dishes that have cumin and coriander, but they both have it. So having kind of those spices or core spices can really help you kind of expand your uh, horizons when you're cooking. At home. Yeah. So I didn't hear garlic or onion. Do you not do that? You know, I love alliums, um, garlic. Uh, I love scallions, actually. Um, I just don't think of them as uh, dried spices, but they're yeah. absolutely used as a flavor base. I, I use them a lot in my house. I know some people actually uh, avoid um, alliums, and that there's plenty of other ways to uh, kind of introduce flavor bases to building the flavors in a dish. Um, some people actually will go for, um, gosh, uh, black sea salt. Uh, yeah, has kind smoky. of a sulf- yeah, smoky, yeah. sulfury note to it. So it's an interesting way or um, the Indian spice hing and um, sometimes has kind of um, 
some people actually think it tastes a little eggy actually. Mm. So it's, it's interesting if you're doing like a scrambled tofu dish, um, but it, it can give such an expansive flavor to it as well. Yeah. If you're avoiding uh, alliance yeah. and things like what that. What about fenugreek? I love fenugreek. I don't use it very frequently at my house, candidly, but it's delicious. I also, uh, obviously it's different than fenugreek, but fennel seeds are yeah. beautiful. I love that licorice note though. It's not for everybody. Um, I actually really like uh, dried peppers as well. So I usually have a, a fair selection of dried peppers to make moles and things like that with, but I don't, I don't necessarily think everybody needs that in their house, but I will say it's kind of nice to have a little chili de arbol on the house some guajillo peppers, you know, cause you can do so many different oh, dishes with it. Now you're, so. now, now you're just showing off. <laughs> now, what about, what about sugars? Because it seems mm-hmm. like, like every five years, there's a new, like, Oh, it's coconut sugar. It's date. It's date sugar. Mm-hmm. It's blackstrap molasses. Oh, it's maple syrup. You know, it's agave nectar. Do you have a favorite uh, that you use kind of a, across the board or yeah, it, you know, it depend it, on your mood? <laughs> this one actually doesn't depend on my mood. It depends on the dish that I'm making. So if I'm like, if I'm baking something, when you think about the chemical structure of that sugar, it can drastically impact the final product. So I will tend to still stick to organic cane sugar. I'm not baking a ton in my life just because it's a lot of sugar. Although arguably making sweets at home is a little bit different than, um, you know, gorging on um, pre-processed sweets, but um, still. So organic cane sugar, but, you know, agave is great because of the lower glycemic index, but then you kind of go into the whole stevia, monk fruit, like the, the yeah. go on and on and on. Personally, I find stevia a little bitter. So I kind of stay away from that as a sweetener. Um, you know, there are a lot of sweeteners out there and they all have different flavors. I mean, like coconut sugar is interesting. It's got a depth of flavor. I mean, date sugar is really interesting too. And kind of. Um, that seems to be very popular right now because yeah. you're, you're getting basically just pulverized dates with all the fiber and the phytonutrients, right. antioxidants. It's not so much an empty calorie. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing is like, you have to think about what are you using that sweetener for? Like, is it just for sweetness or is Mm. there something else you're going to do with it? Um, You know, growing up on the East coast, maple, like real maple syrup, not the corn sugar, maple flavor stuff. um, I I'm particularly fond of, or even maple sugar, but it wouldn't use it to make my sweet potato brownies. So, but I, I will say if I'm making like a chocolate avocado mousse, typically I like to use uh, dates without the seeds just because of that fiber and that kind mm. of caramel note that they bring to it. Mm. It's not great for everything, but there are applications where it makes sense. So I like to use natural sweeteners, um, but sometimes you got to splurge. <laughs> yeah. So it just, it depends on what I'm making um, and what it's going to do to that final product. But yeah, one of our, one, one of our favorite desserts lately at our house is mm-hmm. we get these amazing Medjool dates from Batiste mm-hmm. Farms. They're just like so wet and mm-hmm. they just almost like melt in your mouth. And we mm-hmm. take them, we take the seeds out, we kind of cut them in half, put a little dollop of peanut butter in yes. there. And, and then my kids also put a little bit of dark chocolate chips on but, but, top yep. of the peanut butter. Mm-hmm. And it is just like oh, mm-hmm. decadent, decadent and so good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am. Um... Yeah, my first college assignments rock. We we used to do um, a friend, a couple friends of mine. We would um, meet every Tuesday to read, like read out loud together, and we would make 
peanut butter stuffed dates. Like that was our, our thing. I don't know why it was our thing, but it's, it's such a magical treat. Um, I also love um, dried figs with a little bit of like almond butter in the middle and you can dip it in like dark chocolate if you wanted to temper it, or you could sans the chocolate as well, but very nice dessert, especially when you have a beautiful dried fruit. So yeah, I love it. Um, So in wrapping up, I just, Mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, we um, we've been very fortunate in that for our last medical immersion retreat that we had in Sedona, we actually, and you were probably an integral part of this. You guys provided us with three Escoffier interns that, that came and were boots on the ground in the kitchen. It was a total win-win I think for both the interns and, and for us. And this is a relationship that we're, we're building on. And we've got three more coming to our black mountain retreat just around the corner but want to thank you for, for, for that. And um, do you call them internships or externships? So we call them externships. The reason why is, is because it, it's external from their huh. uh, culinary learning at the institution. It's kind of weird. It, it's very common in culinary schools to be called externships, but every other field pretty much has internships. Yeah, yeah. Same difference, but externs. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you said something in when I was doing my research that I loved. You said, this is an exciting and vibrant, no, you said exciting and vibrant plant-based dishes mm-hmm. is the wave of the future. And, you know, you, you don't have to look any farther than 11, 11 Madison Park and what they're doing just to see how this really is, I think, if you really want to flex your culinary muscles, plant-based is where it's at. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, when we think about the culinary industry, I mean, there's some finesse to searing protein and cooking protein, but there's so much more that goes into preparing beautiful, vibrant, Mm -hmm. nutrient-dense plant-based dishes. And honestly, that is in my opinion, much more of a skill than Mm. creating a um, much more American standard American diet plate of like mashed potatoes, probably overcooked steak, maybe some canned green beans, you know, like it's just, that doesn't make me hungry. It doesn't make me excited about food, but plant-based cooking does because there's just so many textures and flavors and ways that you can play with even just a carrot. Um, and it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Now your grandmother would have found that very exciting. (laughs) Did your, did your grandmother, did your grandmother get to see what you've turned into and for for food? Is she still alive? She is still alive. She um, is struggling a little bit with her memory nowadays. Um, she's back in Connecticut. Um, it's funny because when I, started going vegan it was she had a hard time accepting it because it's just it was foreign to her that somebody right. could subsist not on the way she eats food um so i remember her one time it was a holiday i think it must have been christmas or something like that and i came home from i must have been high school and she turned to me and she goes you're still on that diet i'm like yes i am in my head i went you're still living so yes it's true but i was not that sarcastic with her but um you know, it, it's been interesting just because I think 
she sees me still as a little kid, which is, I think it's very natural for almost everybody. Like when, when people grow up, you still consider them. However, you first met them or how they, you know, the different memories. Um, So I think she's still, I think she's proud of where I've grown from. And um, my father will never tell her this. And I I hope she never hears this, but um, my father one time did say my pierogies were better than hers. So I will take that as the highest compliment. Um, (laughs) But um, you know, she really, she had many kids. She was feeding a lot of people in a very different time period. And at that point, you know, highly processed foods was a marker of modernization and a, a marker of wealth. So I can't really blame her for, um, you know, preparing foods in a very different way than what I would consider wealth. But yeah, um, yep. anyway, no, I digress. <laughs> no, no, we're, this is, we're in a different time period. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. Um, Stephanie, this has been really an absolute joy. Thank you so much for coming on the Plant Strong podcast. If people want to know more about you and Escoffier, if they're interested in taking the one of your plant-based courses, uh, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to our website. It's www.escoffier.edu. Uh, so that's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Um, you may be able to find my information on uh, the website. Candidly, we all have um, faculty bios. So my contact information should be there. Um, but I, candidly, I'm always happy to talk to people about plant-based because it's such a big part of my life. Um, so my email is very long, um, but I, Rip, I'm happy to, I think you have it, but we're happy to share. I'm happy to share it. So okay. we'll, put it in the, <laughs> we'll put it in, we'll put it in the show notes. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Yeah. I, I'm happy to spell it, but it's just going to confuse people. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Right back. All right. Will you do a closeout with me? Just repeat after me. Yeah. Peace. Peace. Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plant strong. Keep it plant strong. Yeah. Awesome. Escoffier has campuses in Boulder, Colorado, and right here in Austin, Texas. But don't fret if you're not in Boulder or Austin. They also have comprehensive online programs as well, including a plant-based culinary arts program. We'll link to that in the show notes on the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. We'll see you all next week. And until then, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Kryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.